this episode of 9-2-I Talks, Aaron Sorkin, Jeff Daniels, Celia Keenan-Bolger, and Benga Akanabi discuss their Broadway smash hit To Kill a Mockingbird with DeRay McKesson, civil rights activist and author of On the Other Side of Freedom. The conversation was recorded on May 9th, 2019 in front of a live audience at New York's 92nd Street Y. Hi, everybody. We'll, we'll uh, let you get your seats while we begin. Uh, that was a great dramatic opening. Hope that you appreciated that. Dramatic. Here we go. So we're excited to have this conversation about uh, the play. Raise your hand if you've seen the play. Oh, wow. A lot of people. There we go. So uh, we won't have a lot of spoilers, but you should have read the book in middle school. Uh, so hopefully you know the book at least or seen the film. Uh, the movie. So let's get started. You know this wonderful group of people. We have Aaron, we have Jeff, we have Celia, we have Binga. Uh, first question for, for all of you is how did you prepare for your, how did you prepare for your roles? And then why, uh, why this story right now? Well, I'll let them answer the how did you prepare for their roles. I opened up Final Draft on my computer and, <laughs> uh, and started. Go ahead. Oh my God, that's such a large question. This, we, our process was, it started in a two-day reading that all three of us were in. It was, I think, your first draft that you had heard out loud. You had one draft before that. I had a secret draft that just me and my garbage can uh, <laughs> have seen, and then what I called the first draft, which is what you read. Right, and then a subsequent two-day reading, and then a four-week uh, workshop, and then another four-week workshop, and then a six-week rehearsal process, and then a six-week preview process. So there, was, there were many steps to getting us to opening night, um, and many rewrites of Aaron's. I feel like the story I always tell is we read the script that first day, and I was like, it's ready. We'll go to Broadway. It's ready. And then I think you wrote 40? Yeah. <laughs> After lot. that, um, and so we were, it, you know, it was a sort of living, breathing organism that Aaron would come in with new pages, and we would, you know, figure out how the, the story needed to be told. And in one of those first workshops, I remember Bart Shear, the director, saying, this seems like a particularly thorny section to put on its feet. Like, how will we do this? How will this, how does this physically move in space? And so that was sort of the next level. We, we were working just on the script and then trying to figure out physically how it existed in space. Um, A lot and, of time on that. Yeah. Because also Aaron, and, and the book does this as well, there are a lot of different locations for this story to take place. And in a movie or on television, you can just cut to the next spot, but in the theater, you have to somehow find yourself in the next location. Um, that's sort of a long answer. But the truth. Mm -hmm. And Aaron, why this story right now, in this moment, this political moment, this moment uh, where race and justice seem to be at the forefront, um, why was this the story you wanted to tell? This will be a long answer, too. <laughs> um, <clears throat> Our producer, Scott Rudin, uh, with whom I've worked a number of times, uh, called me three years ago. Uh, and he said, I have something very exciting to talk to you about. After several years of trying, I've acquired the stage rights for To Kill a Mockingbird, and I want you to write the play. And uh, I, I had two thoughts immediately and simultaneously. One was, oh, this is great. I, I get to write a play. I get to be in a rehearsal room again. I get to work with actors of this caliber and a director of Bart Scher's character, uh, caliber. Um, uh, and I get to be uh, in a theater again. And my other thought was, oh, this is how I'm going to die. <laughs> Adapting to Kill a Mockingbird, are you out of your mind? Um, uh, it's, this is a book that has a very special place uh, on America's bookshelf. And I didn't see how I could do anything but kind of make it less than what it was. Uh, I also thought I, I, would, I would be putting on a nightly PowerPoint demonstration on the differences between Harper Lee's skills and my own, which is like entering a head-to-head -head contest with Tom Brady where points are awarded based on passing efficiency and handsomeness. But I couldn't that resist. Was a good one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
but I couldn't resist um, just doing it, uh, 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 saying yes, no matter what the perils were. And my first draft, the secret first draft, the one that went into my garbage can, uh, it's, it's where it belonged. It was terrible. Uh, it, but what I did was I just simply took the most necessary scenes from the book and I stood them up. Uh, and it, in the end, it, it read like a, um, a, a greatest hits album performed by a cover band. Uh, it, the best you could say about it was that it was harmless, which is probably the worst you can thing you could say about a play, and particularly right. To Kill a Mockingbird. In these situations, like I said, I've worked with Scott before. Ordinarily, uh, when, I, when I deliver the first draft, he'd have me come to New York, uh, and we'd spend about a week uh, in his office uh, where I would get notes uh, every day, and I would go back home with dozens, sometimes hundreds uh, of notes, and I would write uh, the second draft. This time around, I turned in that first draft, that greatest hits uh, first draft, uh, and the note session in his office lasted 25 minutes. And he had one note, which was simply, Atticus can't be Atticus from the beginning of the uh, play to the end of the play. He has to change, uh, which, of course, he does. Uh, I, I know that. Any playwright knows that. A protagonist has to change. They have to have a flaw, uh, and they have to be put through something, uh, and they have to change. And uh, on the f my plane ride home, I was wondering to myself, how, how did Harper Lee get away with an Atticus who doesn't change uh, in the novel. He's exactly the same uh, at the end as he was at the beginning. How did Horton Foote, who won an Oscar for writing the screenplay, get away with an Atticus who doesn't change in the movie? It's the same at the beginning as it was at the end. And I realized that it's because Atticus isn't the protagonist uh, in the book and the movie. Scout is. Um, she's the one who changes. Her flaw is that she's young. Um, and uh, the, the change is that she loses some of her innocence. Well, I wanted Scout and Jem and Dill, for that matter, uh, uh, to remain protagonists, but I wanted Atticus to be the central protagonist, which meant that things were going to have to change. And, um, and it meant that I was no longer, the goal was no longer going to be to wrap the book in bubble wrap and gently transfer it uh, onto a stage. I stopped using the word adaptation. Um, uh, because I thought um, there, are just no, there are no points to be had for sort of accurately uh, adapting the, the book, you know, hewing as close to the book uh, uh, as possible. Um, and, uh, and I got to work on, <clears throat> on, on writing a play. And now I get to answer your question. Uh, uh, <laughs> I'm here. You thought that was a long answer. It was, that was the prologue, man. Uh, it, in going back and, and rereading the book again, like everybody else, I, I read it in seventh, eighth, ninth grade or something, and I have a daughter uh, uh, who was reading it when she was in uh, eighth or ninth grade, so, so I got to revisit it uh, a couple of times. There were things that were nagging at me uh, about... Atticus. Um, and in particular, it was his belief that there's, that you can find goodness in anyone if you just look hard enough that all you have to do is crawl around inside someone else's skin and you could find the goodness in them. And I, I was having trouble finding the goodness in a number of characters in the story, not just Bob Ewell, but um, uh, Atticus in the book, uh, he excuses Bob Ewell's racism. He just lost his WPA job. You gotta understand that that makes a person feel small. He excuses Mrs. DeBose's racism. She just stopped taking her, uh, her medicine, uh, that, so uh, she's a little nuts. He excuses the town's racism. This is the deep south, you gotta give him time. Um, uh, things move slowly here. Uh, and there's goodness in everyone. Uh, I, I was thinking about that and at the moment that Donald Trump stood up and said there are good people on both sides. Um, and I thought, I'm in. <laughs> uh, I'm in. And um, that, in short, is why now. There we go. Jeff, you play the flawed Atticus, this Atticus uh, that is different from the Atticus in the book, for sure. 
I'd love to know, are, what were the scenes for you that were the scenes that you forgot the audience, the scenes that sort of stood out the most as you played this Atticus that many of us had never seen before? What were the scenes? Uh-huh. Well, there's the jail scene with um, Tom. That's new, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and like, what about it stood out to you? What about it? What a- <laughs> I, can't, I can't hear him. Yeah, you can't hear me. Yeah, what, what about, were there scenes that you performed that were so special that they just stood out in terms of how this new story was told? Because you, you play a character that many of us had literally never seen before. We hadn't seen a, yeah. we didn't read a flawed uh, Atticus, and we certainly didn't see a flawed Atticus in the film for many of us. Yeah, scene. he, you know, he's just a small town. I approached, I try to approach things as simply as possible. And you, you do a lot of research for it, you know, to your earlier question of what you, I just did a lot of reading about Alabama, 30s, Jim Crow South. I wanted to get educated on what Atticus saw when he stood on his porch. And when Bob Ewell would come up to him and ask him if he was gonna go to the lynching on Thursday, or guys like that. I wanted to create that world. And I start the play every night a father with no wife, with two kids. I'm a small town lawyer. I get paid in vegetables sometimes, and I handle land dispute service agreements and foreclosures. I believe there's goodness in everyone. I go to church, I read the Bible, and I read Russian novels at night. That's who I am. And then the judge comes over and sits on my porch and changes my life. That's how I go into it every day, every, every, every show. And then after that, you go on the journey that he has given us, that Aaron has given us. And one of those scenes is with Benga. It's the jail scene, which always stops. It doesn't stop the show, but that's when they really get like this and they start to listen in that jail scene. Um, That scene also uh, kind of uh, changes the character of Tom Robinson uh, in a big way. Uh, One thing, and and listen, I would hate for anyone to... uh, get the impression that what I sought to do was kind of correct what I, uh, mistakes that I felt Harperly made. It's not at all uh, uh, what this is. Um, you know, what it was, was uh, I, I, I didn't want to pretend that I was writing the play in 1960, uh, and I didn't want to try to do a Harper Lee impersonation. This was just going to be written by someone else. But in the book, in the movie, uh, there are only two significant African-American characters. Calpurnia, the maid, Tom Robinson, the accused. Um, And in this story about racial tension in the Jim Crow South, those only two significant African-American characters had really nothing to say uh, on the matter and no agency. Uh, Cal is mostly interested in whether Scout is going to wear a dress or overalls to school. Tom Robinson pleads for his life, uh, and that's it. So um, that scene that you're talking about, that uh, first act scene, uh, in the jail cell, uh, I thought was important. Uh, be, we, we get to hear Tom speak for himself uh, and, and something other than I didn't do it. And something which in the book, I just want to be careful about spoilers here because some of you haven't seen it. Uh, something which in the book uh, was inadvertent on Tom's part when he's on the witness stand. He inadvertently insults the all-white jury. Um, is no longer uh, inadvertent uh, uh, because we see in that first act jail scene, Atticus warned Tom, don't say this, say it this way. It's a great setup. Um, setup. And in the second act, Tom is sort of at the end of his rope being abused, being called, you know, accused of being a sexual monster, being called boy uh, uh, by the prosecutor, kind of grabs at just one chance to be in control uh, of his own life, uh, no, no matter what the cost. So it, it makes a difference in the character. And bigger for you, I'll, I'll never forget uh, seeing, I was there on opening night, and, and this idea, we would say in the street, this notion of we tell the truth everywhere, right? That part of protest is telling the truth in public, and, and that scene is definitely this sort of truth-telling moment for you. Uh, and Calpurnia does have a different role, uh, for sure, in the play than in the book. Uh, how, how do you make sense of the way, you know, in, in so many ways, uh, your character 
the play doesn't exist without your character's pain and trauma, and you still are sort of a small part of a, it's white people telling the story about black pain. That is sort of what the book was. Uh, how do you make sense of like what we, how far we've come and how far we have to go in terms of making sure that we center black people in their own narratives or these narratives that like actually are about them in the end and how your character starts to do this in the play? I think the fact that we're having this national conversation in, in the arts and politics as far as people being able to tell their own narrative is, is, is good, right? Because for the longest time, you, know, you, you weren't able to even speak about or people were to recognize that, you know, that what's wrong with Tom Cruise being the last samurai? There's nothing wrong with that. You know, this, like, it, it wasn't a thing. Um, one of the things that impressed me about this show is that from the very beginning, uh, Aaron and Bart, you know, they, they wanted to make sure, like they, they spoke up front about this whole white savior thing that is, that's, you know, throughout the book and throughout the film, and they wanted to make sure to, to address that and eliminate it as much as possible in, in, in this. And that, that made me feel good. That made me feel comfortable. Like, okay, we, we can start, we're starting this journey off like really talking about, you know, talking about what's real as opposed to like, let's pat ourselves on the back by being great white liberals because we're talking about race. Um, the, and I'm sure the conversations like that happen all the time in places like this, you know? <laughs> so, no offense, no offense. <laughs> details, details, details. <laughs> So, so that, that, that made me feel like we could, ha we could start, we'll start from a, a real place and, and talk about this. And honestly, like, I was, and I'm not just saying this because he's here, but because I've said it a lot, it was, it, was very, it was very interesting and great for me to see Aaron Sorkin with all his privilege, like, do this self-interrogation. You know, because like he, he spoke a lot about like, himself and, his, and his, his white male privilege and his, and, and he's, He's got money, you know what I mean? And, and, and just like really dissect that while doing this play. And that, and that, that to me, that would, that would, whether he said it or not, that, was, that would be part of how, to me, how I would envision or see this thing being built, right? The people who are coming together to tell this story so this, you know, of, of, about racial injustice in, in the South. And so him being as honest as he is and was about it, and, and Bart as well, um, it, it felt like we were we'd be we're in a good place to tell an honest story. How it would be received, you know, that's that's up to the audience and whatever happens on the end. But it felt like we were studying on on, a, on the right foot. Now, one of the big changes too is that Scout is no longer a little kid. Scout is a grown up uh, in this moment. Uh, why that decision? And then I'd love to know, like, how did how do you think that changes the way the story is told? Sure. Well, she is a little kid. She's being played by uh, a grown-up. She is uh, actually she goes back and forth between the girl she was and, uh, and the woman that she became. Um, <clears throat> it it happened. Okay. There's the story we tell, and then there's what really happened. Um, uh, <laughs> because they're both true. Um, uh, what happened was uh, we were doing the very first table read. And uh, Bart and Scott and I, you know, just said, listen, because uh, th these roles, Scout, Jam, and Dill, um, uh, are very difficult roles. There's just a lot of dense language, um, uh, you know, the, the kinds of long run-on sentences uh, uh, that I write. I did not spare the young people. <laughs> Everybody was in it. No, it's a monologue. He spared no one. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, so we just thought, just, just for the first table read, just so we can get a, a good read, uh, uh, let's not use uh, uh, kids. Uh, uh, let's use you know solid, grown-up professional actors, um, uh, and and we'll take it from there. Uh, and one of them was Celia, uh, and uh, Celia at this first table read was amazing. Uh, uh, she was incredible. As far as I was concerned, she was doing a magic trick uh, of some kind, just the slightest adjustment in her voice and her posture uh, uh, going back and forth, and it worked. And when we took the break between acts, we didn't even wait till we got to the end. Bart and Scott and I huddled up and said, this is exactly the way uh, uh, we should do it. Uh, it just works and, and without explanation. Now, the truth of the matter is, 
um, that I, when I was writing the play, and I'm very physical uh, when I'm writing, I, I'm, I'm acting out all the parts, I talk out loud, I'm, I'm up and down uh, uh, from my desk. The character was always a kid, but the actor never was uh, uh, when I was writing it. Just the, the, it's hard to explain, but it's fun. I, I was just talking to Bart maybe a week ago, um, and it was the first time we talked openly uh, about it. And he said the following, I was always praying it wasn't going to be a kid. <laughs> um, God, I was too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Uh, listen, if WC you look at it, was right. yeah, <laughs> um, it just, it, it couldn't have. You, you, you uh. an actor of, uh, uh, of, <laughs> of Celia's quality and Gideon Glick and, uh, and Will Pullen who play uh, Dylan and Jem, uh, respectively. I'm pretty sure that was the answer to your question, right? Yep. Oh, okay. Now, Sarah, I think also, you know, when they said to me, you know, it's going to be played by kids, will you just come and do the read through? And in my heart, I was like, I will steal this role from you. <laughs> <laughs> I want this part so bad. I know it's an um, eight-year-old, but I'm <laughs> I really, And I do think there is something in the book and in the movie, there is an adult voice. So you already, it's already built in. And what I think is so amazing about the theater is that instead of casting a grown-up and a kid, only in the theater That's right. could you cast one person to get to do the whole thing. And it's so gratifying to be the actor to, who gets to do that. And I think because of the way we built it and we were constantly, I kept saying to Aaron in that first scene, how old am I? Where are we? Uh, and all of these things, and he was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, I have to, and it's like the greatest gift that, was given because as we've continued to perform the show, there are scenes when, we, when you saw it on opening night where I was watching it as a little kid that now I'm like, oh no, this is definitely the grown-up scout looking back on this. And it, it changes through the weeks, you know, or performance to performance that I feel like the way that I get to zoom out and then go back inside of the action, because we were sort of fast and loose, with those rules, it's so much more interesting to perform it night after night after night. And I also think there's a way in which a grown-up, not only looking back on a summer where the facts don't line up and where there were really enormous lessons learned about racial injustice, that to be an adult right now, looking back you know, it's 2019, we're looking back on a book that was written in the 60s about the 30s. I cannot help but feel like, as a grown-up, you know, the day-to-day -day events of what we're experiencing right now end up on stage at the Schubert Theater because that's what it is to do a living, breathing play every night. There we go. Uh, I want to go back to Tom and Kel Calpurnia's role is that there's some people who saw those scenes and said that that wasn't realistic, that they, that people wouldn't have, that Calpurnia wouldn't have pushed back on Atticus in that way, that like Tom wouldn't have had an outburst like this. What do you say to those people? Uh, I'm sorry. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, well, I'll tell you what I did say um, uh, because uh, we were sued. Uh, you may have heard about this when. Um, uh, when we were, last year, uh, when we were in a sub-basement at Lincoln Center doing those uh, uh, workshops, the Harper Lee Estate. Uh, uh, Harper Lee had one solid contractual uh, approval in her contract. She had absolute approval over the playwright. And she approved me. And three weeks later, she died. I don't think those two things are related. <laughs> 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 that was good too. <laughs> yeah, but I really feel bad getting a laugh off of the death. Yeah, <laughs> <Love it. laughs> yeah it's still um, a laugh. Uh, <laughs> and so. <laughs> Isn't that what we say? It's still, yeah, it's um, still a laugh. So the Harper Lee estate was now in charge. And the Harper Lee estate is one person. Um, uh, and this one person. Uh, uh, took issue with uh, some of the things that I had uh, done in the play. And so there was a list of complaints. 
Uh, and one of them was, uh, it, it was worded exactly this way. A typical black maid in the South at this time would never speak to their employer like that. First of all, there's no such thing as a typical black maid. Second, plays aren't written about typical people doing typical things, and that's what I would say to your friends. Not my friends. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, <laughs> uh, I just, friends. I blamed you. I know. Okay. <laughs> um, What's that? You know, usually I blame Celia, but you were next to me. <laughs> <laughs> he does usually blame me. Binga, any, any response to people who say that you're, like, Tom wouldn't have, wouldn't have yelled out in the courtroom, wouldn't have done those things? Um, well, may I just say he doesn't yell uh, uh, in the courtroom. He's very composed <laughs> when he does that. He's, the, the, oh, you haven't seen it recently. Uh, You've yeah. <laughs> <laughs> been on like a she, run for about a week. Like she said, it's a living, growing thing, Aaron. <laughs> Like, what uh, did you want? It sounds like I may need to come back. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kicking over chairs. <laughs> All right. Um, Outburst. <laughs> there's, there's, it, I love doing theater because it changes, and especially with, with this cast, it's, I'm going to answer your question, but it made me think about how Bart came to see, Bart came back, as, as Aaron does every once in a while, and, um, and it was right before Bart was, you were there going to Germany, and he, t he commented on how, how surprised he was that the show was still so very tight. <laughs> he's like, oh, that's well, really good still. And, I'm like, and, and to me... Best cast he's ever had <laughs> six months in to be right here. I, it, it, right? It is, and it's true. It's absolutely true. I was and, thrilled. And, and we, <laughs> we, we hold each other like, in, in ways, like whether it's spoken or unspoken, like to, to a certain accountability um, as far as the what we do on that stage, and and it and it by having that it helps to play, you know, and and knowing that if if something happens, I know he's got me, she's got me, or it's it's and it it helps to play in an honest way w with that world that's 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 been created and being created, um, even when the playwright's not around. Uh, <laughs> The, and so that being said, like to me, I mean, this man's about to die, and he knows he's about to die, and 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 a, the play's been structured to, and 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 the performances have been structured to to get to the point where this is the this is the choice in the in, in the moment. This like is this is his last choice about whether he's going to. How does he want his children to remember him? Because he knows he's probably not going to survive this, you know, and and and. He's got two small kids, and they're already going to grow up in the Jim Crow South. So, he, like, he, he's so yeah. It, to me, it's believable that he's going to he'll he'll you know he, he will say something to to take agency once again in his or for you know you know at least in the, in this scenario in in his life. Just from the stress. Yeah, he's, Just he's from pushed, the stress. He's pushed, Boom, pushed, on it comes. You know, so. It's absolutely believable, and that's and that's the job of of you know the the you know the play right to make it to get to the point where that choice is believable, and then and the actor as well. So it, the answer is like I, I, it's 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 small minded to think that everyone in the South act, acted a certain way during that time. I mean, even let's go back further when there was slavery. Like you had people, you had people like black people who were in like relationships, like secret relationships with like, and I don't just mean like, you know, the raping of slaves, like people who like met like white slave, white people who like were dating and marrying secretly these black women. You know what I mean? So this was, this, this happened. This was obviously, you know, illegal and secret, but they saw each other in ways that society didn't allow them to see one another. You know what I mean? So it existed. And we have this idea of the South and that was also something interesting to see um, change during the construction of the play. But how how were we going to depict the South? You know, especially being northern northerners doing this play. And we talked about that a lot, and, and, and it changed, and, and so on. It, it was it was a very organic process, and we wanted to be honest and not alien, not necessarily alienate for the purpose of alienating, but actually be be honest, but also like have it uh, be a space where everyone could could you know come and and partake of, you know, America's novel, America's play. You know what I mean? Yep. 
I also think it circles back to that question you had about who gets to tell the story. Is the reason that we think that people didn't act like that in the 30s because the only people that were allowed to write stories were white men, generally, so that we have an idea about how people behaved because it's from a very specific point of view. Yeah. And I think if, if we are able to cast the net a little wider that we would see that there is no such thing as a typical mate or that the dynamics of a household could vary. I, I just, I agree 100%. <laughs> <laughs> uh, <that's> a, uh, <laughs> I, I was going to add more, but I feel like I've talked to um, but, but what I was going to say... <laughs> <laughs> uh, Jeff, I'd love to know, uh, the, the Atticus that we see, we've already talked about, is flawed in a way we, we never saw in the book or the, or the film. What do you think uh, we can... What do you think the character of Atticus in the play can do to help us sort of deconstruct, like Binga said, the, the white savior mentality? Like, what's the lesson? What are some lessons that white people can take from how we see a flawed Atticus in terms of how they think about what their role can be around issues of justice? Um, well, I, I, I think waiting for something to fix all this, sitting by, sitting on your porch, not doing anything, not being informed, uh, thinking that it will, the goodness in people will win out, I think we're, that's being challenged right now. And you see a guy who believes that in, in Atticus, and then he gets, it doesn't, he loses the case. He gets called out by Calpurnia and the kids and, and his son, and uh, he finally hits bottom and goes, I know, I know that. I know that they're not just monsters on that jury, they're murderers. I accept that. I accept that. And then he's got to now, what's he going to do about it? And... Aaron, you know, has a kind of nice denouement at the end of the thing about what Atticus tries to do and turns into a bit of a more of an activist. But we can't just sit back. I mean, this is a big heart. The book was, too, a big, big, huge slap in the face of white America. Like, wake up. Wake up. I mean, this is not news. I mean, you, not, not news, what happens in this play to you guys. It's, it's funny. Um, I, I, I think one of the very first interviews uh, that we did. It was, it was during rehearsal. I think it was Gail King uh, uh, doing the interview. I, it must have been for a CBS uh, uh, thing. And I feel like it was the four of us um, uh, uh, that she was, we were around a table. Uh, Latanya and, was there as well. And Latanya was there as well. Uh, and Gail King asked uh, something like what was special about the book or, or and I, I answered, uh, <clears throat> well, you know, it, it was the first time uh, that it was the first time for a lot of things. It was the first time the hero wore glasses. Uh, and and I, I, I listed this thing that was the first time of my last one was, um, uh, and uh, it was our first uh, experience with racial injustice. And Benga just looks at me. It's like, not for all of them. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. Speak for yourself. <laughs> I, it, it, if you grew up in Scarsdale, it's our first experience with racial injustice. <laughs> and, and, I, and I think, just to, just to follow up, they, that, what, that slap in the face, and I, we've, we, we, know, we see this eight times a week, we, and it's a little bit of a mantra. You watch the movie, you read the book, you feel the play. The way Bart has put this thing together, the way Aaron has written it, and the way we write it like Secretariat. It, we make them feel it. And we see it with people coming backstage after the shows, with the people outside, with the You hear them gasp. You hear them groan. You hear them take it in the, in the heart right when he gets, the, you know, he gets let off. I mean, you're in the room with it. And that's a different experience for white America. And when people leave this play changed. Uh, in, in a, it, it, I think Jeff's description of it being a slap in the face of white America is right. Um, remarkably, uh, uh, people at the end of the play are, they feel good. Um, uh, uh, they, uh, they're inspired uh, somehow. Um, there's a scout makes a, a direct appeal at the end of the play to a call to, uh, uh, to action, um, and people uh, emotionally respond to that. And I thought it was interesting a couple of weeks ago in the Sunday Times, uh, Frank Rich uh, wrote a piece uh, about 
mostly about black playwrights um, and plays this season. But um, he mentioned our play. Now, uh, uh, and the, he mentioned our play not, he made the play sound very good. What he was unhappy about was the reason why people were enjoying it. Uh, well, the reason why white people uh, were enjoying it. Um, and I, I disagreed, but I thought that it was an interesting discussion uh, uh, that he was having. I also think there's, if there's like a macro version of what is happening in the play that I can identify with, which is that during Obama's presidency, I believed so strongly that we were, that as a country, heading in the right direction, that my privilege allowed me to not see so much of the sort of, of the everyday struggles of people that don't look like me. And that I think in a similar way, Atticus can say like, you know, this is a good place. We're going, we're, it's slow, progress is slow, but it's moving. And it's only his privilege that allows him to have that point of view. And then here we are, and I'm and, and feeling like all of this that we are grappling with right now existed when Barack Obama was president. And I was in a position where I didn't have to deal with it. And I think there is a way as a, as a community of, of people looking for art to reflect our experience that I do think that I have felt very moved by in, in the way that this story is told. That's, that's like, of course, it was there all along. I just didn't have to deal with it. Yeah. yeah. Some of it was here. This imagery, this is it's a little crazy. A next step. I, 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 <laughs> I, I, I think what's happening now is like the, it's like, the, you know, the pretenses are all falling apart. The the, the illusion of of you know democracy, the, the illusion of equality, all those things. These these people don't care to you know sustain them, you know, well. And so now, I wanted to make a comment about the book. I like the book very much. I love the book, and I know people love the book in this nation. Um, I think part of the reason the book was so, is so, was so successful and touched so many people is because it allowed white people to feel as if they were doing something. Uh -huh. um, and, and, and that wasn't so. You know, but it made liberal white people like, look, this is, here's a, here's a representation of how we, we feel and how we should feel. And so, and so uh, obviously, it, it you know, did well as a film. It, it rewarded the Oscar and so on. It, it made, like, white people feel good about race issues. And, but that, that's, that was it. It made people feel good. It wasn't real. You know, you know what I mean? A little walkout scene. Yeah, and one, of, and one of the reasons that it made people feel good, you know, one of the things that I was reminded of when I saw the play was literally that this is all white people telling a story about like a black person's pain, right? That that is like, that is how the book was constructed. You're pushing? Well, yeah, okay, I, 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 I get that. Um, first of all, it, it's, it's a, the, the book, the movie, and, and particularly the play. Um, it's about more than just one person's uh, pain and struggle, right? Um, uh, the, who are the other people? Atticus, Scout. Um, uh, uh, Jen, Dill, uh, uh, they're, they're all struggling with something. This has come up a couple of times in this conversation, and it's, it's come up in other places. And I'm asking you this honestly. I'm not being snarky. Yeah. Should a white playwright uh, only... Am I not allowed to write about... Uh, Injustice, pain, suffering of people who aren't white. Yeah, no. So not at all. What I push and say is that like the pain of Tom is this the centerpiece of everything. That without that pain, that like the, the narratives don't work, right? Right. And that, and this is not you didn't you didn't make the story. You're, you you made it a play. Is that there is something about like what do we do when we center white people's perspectives when we tell stories that like at the end of the day if there's no Tom there really is no there's a doesn't exist he is the inciting action so like what, there were options that even Harper Lee could have taken that there could have been without even changing the narrative structure that like we could have learned more about how Tom Dotton felt. Uh, right? uh, so uh, there's there's no question that there were. Uh, other roads to go down uh, with this story. 
in which Scout and Atticus are uh, secondary characters, and we uh, go home uh, uh, with Tom, we meet the wife and the kids, and we understand Tom's life. Which doesn't even mean uh, they have to be secondary characters, but it does mean that Tom doesn't, isn't a secondary character. So to your question, yeah. it is not that white people can't write stories about people of color, like that would be an absurd statement to say. Mm -hmm. It is about recognizing what does it mean that we so often tell stories about people of color that center white perspectives. So, and again, you didn't make the story. Like Harper. No, no, no but I, I'm, I'm, but I'm not gonna take plenty of your credit for it. So I'm not gonna um, uh, uh, pass it off. <laughs> yes, you're right. Um, I, and Tom is in this story to die. Uh, okay, that's why he's there. Uh, uh, just dramatically speaking, but Tom is in this story to die. But he like lives in that world that is constructed. That is, we don't see the living uh, uh, often. You're right, and um, that's why I, I feel like, uh, and I, I hope it happens over the course of decades and centuries, uh, that there are five different To Kill a Mockingbirds uh, uh, that you can write, uh, just like Tom Stoppard came along and wrote Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead, uh, uh, right, in which Hamlet is a very small uh, character, and these two very small characters from Hamlet uh, were in their world, um, and were mostly in Stafford's head. Uh, uh, so there is another uh, uh, story to write um, about Tom Robinson and this uh, white lawyer with a weird name uh, who the court assigned me, um, I, and where uh, it could be good. I mean, these scenes that take place in. Tom's jail cell with his visitors, his wife, and uh, you just get a sense of his life. Um, I'm not the guy uh, uh, to write that. Um, I, I, I'm, uh, if I'm the guy to write anything, uh, it is about the struggle of the white guy trying to come to grips with the fact uh, that there is uh, real life injustice in the world. Uh, you know, what, one of the things that another uh, of Atticus's mantras, in addition to this goodness can be found in everyone, is he keeps repeating, I know these people. Mm. He's talking about the people who have made them. I know these people. My family's lived here for generations. I know these people. There are friends and neighbors. I know these people. Sure, some of them are stuck in the old ways, but there aren't any of them who are so far gone that they would send an obviously innocent man to the electric chair. I know these people. I know these people. And I think that uh, over the last few years, a lot of us, no matter where you are on the ideological spectrum, a lot of us have felt like, I thought I knew these people. Um, I thought I knew my neighbors. Uh, I, I thought I knew the people in this country. Um, and uh, so I feel more qualified uh, to, it's, it's, it's not a matter of qualification. It's just uh, sort of magnetically where I uh, go to. Um, but I hope uh, that uh, a talented writer comes along uh, and writes the, the Tom Robinson POV of, uh, of To Kill a Mockingbird. Me too. <laughs> um, uh, there's a question about what kind of, uh, this idea of that this is still a living text, that this is a text that is still taught in classrooms and that you perform it. So this notion of what kind of response have you gotten from kids who have read the book and now have seen the play? What has that been like for you all? I immediately, there's been a lot of different responses. They, they all love it. But immediately what comes to mind is when we went up to the Bronx and they had a, um, a mock trial of, of To Kill a Mockingbird. I wasn't even quite sure what we were going up to watch. And, uh, and so they, they had, it was amazing. They had done a, they're doing a mock trial that was part improv and part, like they had, you know, rehearsed it. And in the, in the mock trial when they did it, I think the first time, it, and it could be any, any outcome, they found Tom guilty. And I was like, like what? <laughs> and I, you guys can change the fatal. He's guilty, really. Like, really? I mean, they, like, you know, no, no, I'm not joking. Yeah. Were they trying to, excuse me, were they trying to, um, uh, uh, you know, impersonate what a Jim Crow jury would have done? Or? I, 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 yes. Uh, okay. Yes, but it was also some improv, but they, they, but they, they yes. It was actually quite impressive, though. <clears throat> and, um, and, the response, like they, they had learned 
they had learned the, the moments, and it, it, was, it, was, it was actually quite beautiful to watch and, and hilarious at the same time. Um, so th to see that response, like they had so, they, they started to, 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 in, to live these characters and then make them their own because the this, this story had responded to, they responded to the story so much and their teacher had done such a great job of bringing it to them in a new light. It was, that, that was one of the best responses that I've seen to, to this text. There was also a student matinee where... Um, you had one today. We did. Yes, we did. At 1 p.m. Um, Which is, by the way, if you're wondering how on a Thursday night... <laughs> we all get to be here. Because I was wondering for a minute. <laughs> Put a lot of understudies on. Yeah. Um, uh, they did a show this afternoon. <laughs> but we... There was, there's a reveal of Boo Radley and... Always with the student matinees, the responses are, it's like we have to completely modulate the performance in a different way because the responses are completely different. And Boo Radley came out from behind the door and throughout the audience, it was like, it's Boo Radley, it's Boo Radley, it's Boo Radley. It's, and the audience erupted in applause. Uh, really? And I was like, I, it was one of the most beautiful moments in the theater because I was like, oh, these kids feel ownership over this story. Like they know the story that they came to see. They're waiting for this guy. And the reveal was actually like incredibly meaningful to them oh. in a way that the adult audiences are like, eh, that's yeah, both. Fine. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like not such a big deal. But that was something where I was like, oh my gosh, this is really, really beautiful. It's, it's, it's with this text, we get a lot of moments like that. I. Do you remember maybe a week or two ago, like Atticus has this summation at the end, and he talks about how his his father, you know, you know, gives him this air rifle and says, "Don't kill, you know, a mockingbird." It's, like, it's a sin to kill a mockingbird, and someone in the audience goes, "Huh?" <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, "Are you just connecting the title now?" <laughs> I thought I was in Hades. Yeah, I was like, someone literally goes, what am I doing here? I was like, wow. Oh, I, had to, I had to turn and hold it down. I was like, God. That was amazing. And that's, uh, that was amazing. <laughs> we had a guy open mouth sleeping in the first row yes, the other night. Yes, yes. Yeah. He applauded at the end, though. <laughs> first one on his feet at the end. Yeah. <laughs> I get a, um, uh, I'm emailed a stage manager's report uh, a few minutes after the curtain comes down uh, every night. And it's, it just gives you basic information, the running time on each act. You just want to check and make sure it's not fattening uh, uh, too much. Um, and just notes, I mean, they'll, they'll say, you know, Bang's testimony was uh, fantastic, and Celia did this great, and Jeff's summation uh, was amazing. But a couple of times a week, uh, the stage managers will note that a cell phone went off during this incredibly dramatic moment, and I die a little bit. Uh, I, I, oh, <laughs> you die. <laughs> oh, it's the William Tell Overture. <laughs> yeah, don't have. <laughs> At least don't I'll have wait. Ring <laughs> you can't talk to him. You can't say anything. No. You just wait. Yeah. I will say whatever you want to say about a student audience, the phones don't go they off. They don't go off. They don't know how to turn off their cellular telephone. Uh, there's a question. <laughs> there's a question about how you chose these roles. So there's a question specifically for you, Jeff. It says, I, I also heard that you're in this show for an entire year. Isn't that uncommon? Uh, Is it? Uh, yeah. I'm happy you, because Jeff is too modest. Yes, it's phenomenally uncommon. Uh, ordinarily, you would get an actor like Jeff uh, for 16 weeks, maybe 20. If you are incredibly lucky, six months. Um, you do not get Jeff uh, uh, for a year. It's Atticus Finch, you know. Uh, but it's and I, uh, you know, look, yeah, and it is, and it's. It, but you know what? I'm. We're in our seventh month. Mm -hmm. If you count previews, and we do. Um, <laughs> there's 45 of them, so we count them. <laughs> so we're up over, we're about 210, something like that, 210 shows. Eight shows a week since November. Yeah. And, and I still enjoy it. I really do. It's I'm, still a challenge. I still, I'm not...
still enjoy it. It's I new every night. Happy to say that Celia uh, has extended her contract and will be uh, with the show really? in November. <laughs> I love that you just found out here. I, I did just great. find out. Last time I talked to her, she's like, I'm not doing that. They want me to stay. I'm not staying. You're going to keep going? Because I talked to some people. Okay, all right. Should I just break this news with the cast? <laughs> Sorry about that. No, I'm, oh my God. I was assumed. Yeah. How long do we have you? <laughs> I am out, damn it. Yeah. Let's no, no, no. Let's Benga's contract right now. <laughs> Where are you going? Um, right now, right now, till Next November. No, no, no. Oh, till November. Here, I'm okay. here. So we're all here. of them. For we're, all, we're here for a while. Yeah. There we go. We're here for a while. But... It's, it's what they used to do in the old days. I mean, I, 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 first of all, it's Atticus Finch, it's Aaron Sorkin, it's the Schubert Theater. You, this is not the show that you pick up the phone in the middle of it and go, get me something better. Mm. There is nothing better than this. I, I'm just telling you. And then when, when it came together and the cast we have, the crew, the, open, the critics went hosannas on us. And it's, that's the dream. It's the dream. So to be in this for a year feels like I'm not ready to let it go. Um, after a year, okay, here are the car keys. Do what you want with it. But, but no, this one's mine. And uh, I'm not ready to let it go yet. And a uh, question, were there parts of the play which you would have liked to take even further but couldn't because of the restraint of, quote, going to Broadway? The restraint of going to Broadway. Uh, what does that mean exactly? I didn't write the question, but I think that, oh. they, uh, I think that they met. Like, well, I, 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 I can answer it. Uh, uh, we are absolutely doing the play <laughs> of any playwright's dreams. Um, uh, uh, we are definitely doing the, the, the play. Uh, I was dreaming that we'd do plays. Um, and for that matter, movies and, and episodes of television. Plays aren't finished. They're confiscated. Yeah. Um, uh, there, there wasn't a day when I went, That's, it's not going to get any better than that. Let's go. Uh, there was just a day when a grown-up came in and said, you've got to put your pencils down now. He had, <laughs> he had rewrites in his hand, and they put him on the plane. Uh, uh, it's true. I mean, it uh, is. We, we never stopped rehearsing uh, uh, during previews. No. Uh, I, I think the, the day before opening night, um, uh, there was a rehearsal, wasn't there? It was one of the most, I, I will keep it with me forever to watch somebody who I hold in the esteem that I hold Aaron Sorkin rewrite the way that he did. Because that is a very specific kind of gift. Because we were so far in. I was like, I don't understand how he can keep understanding what the play needs and where it has to go. Because I, I was like long gone. I felt like the second week of previews, I was like, guys, we're not going to be rehearsing for much longer. <laughs> He's done it. He's done it. it. We're fine. It, Six weeks later. I, I appreciate that. It, in my own defense, it was also Bart. Um, uh, because I, I remember uh, uh, saying to Bart, as we were starting to get close to the, the critics start coming um, four or five performances uh, before opening night. So as we were getting closer to uh, critics previews, I remember saying to Bart, uh, do you want to you know, rest them uh, a little bit? And he said, no, I don't want them anywhere but inside this building. Uh, I, I just hate when they leave the building. <laughs> I, I, I believe it. Because that's what happened. I believe, I believe it, yes. <laughs> So as we close, uh, last question is, what, a, what is a piece of advice that you would give to young people who uh, want either a space in the theater, want people who are trying to think about like how to use art to change the world? Like, What would be your advice uh, to people in this moment? We can start with you, Binga. Oh. <laughs> I was like, I was hoping they started with Aaron. Um, there's so many opportunities in the world and a lot to to find paths right to as far as what our path and trying this one and to create art and put it out there you, particularly but young people and part of being young is like not knowing and not and figuring it out as you go I, I think I would just tell young people like to to just practice your craft practice your craft practice your craft and, and then and determine your own idea of what success is 
you know, not, not what you sold, not what your friend did. She said this thing that I still think about. I love this cast. And, and, and they, she, she said, compare and despair. We, we spoke at Juilliard, and I still think about it. And we all, we do it as artists. We do it as, we, this person's doing this, this person's got this, and so on. And then we despair. And then that dis, that's a distraction from our craft and, 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 and just getting better. So knowing that that's this thing that sits in your head, and, you know, and isn't necessarily you, and when you start to do it and putting aside, put it aside and just get back to your craft, you know, it's, it's, it, it, it can save you and make you. I think maybe that I had a lot of ideas about the kind of art that I was supposed to like that would make me feel like I was more intelligent or that I was um, sort of keeping up with what was you know, what, what was in style, whatever. And that it turns out as a grown-up that it's like, I just don't like Shakespeare that much. <laughs> and, that, and, and I, for so long, felt so embarrassed by that, but that there are so many things that I do like and that it's figuring out, like, if you can locate what speaks to you and then pursue that instead of spending all of the time trying to figure out why something doesn't appeal to you, that I think there's so much, there's so much incredible art out in the world that if you can help, if you can instinctually find yourselves, find yourself responding to things, that that's where, what you go towards instead of trying to figure out the things that you're supposed to like. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, I, Frank, uh, Frank Rich again, right after 9-11, he, about two months, six weeks, two months after 9-11, he wrote an article, I forget in which magazine, probably New Yorker or, or New, York, New York, and he said, where are the artists? We need you now. Where are the artists? Illuminate this moment in our lives for us. That's what you do. Where are you? And he was, it was, he was calling them out. Springsteen was driving around New Jersey, and he was at a light, and a guy pulled up, rolled down his window, and he said to him, we need you now. And he wrote The Rising. That's what Mockingbird is. And Pelosi talked about that when we were in Washington at that, that restaurant where she hosted. She said, the arts can unify us, even this country right now. You know, that's the challenge anyway. And a play like Mockingbird uh, is doing that. It's, it's, it's changing people. It can bring people together and change them. We are one example, and it's great that the American theater has a voice, and Mockingbird is a play that reminds us the American theater can have a voice, and that's, that's a good thing. Doesn't happen all that often. My advice first would be to listen to these three. Uh, <laughs> absolutely. Um, you know, uh, when I was starting out, which to me feels like yesterday. It, it, it yeah. really does. Um, I, I don't think I'm telling anybody anything they don't know, but time moves really fast. Mm. Uh, uh, when I, my dream uh, was always and only to be a professional writer, uh, uh, to be able to pay my bills writing. Dreaming big for me was, you know, when, I, when I'd fall asleep at night was that maybe one day I would be able to afford a two-bedroom apartment so that I could turn the second bedroom into an office. The life I ended up with, the professional life I ended up with, was so far beyond anything uh, uh, that I was thinking about. Um, so you, you uh, if, 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 if that's the path you're going to go, if you want to be a, a playwright, you have to want to be a playwright. Um, uh, uh, you, you can't want the stuff. Uh, that comes with it. And the second thing that you can't do is uh, try to take a show of hands to see who, uh, figure out who wants what and then give that uh, uh, to the audience. Uh, when I write, I, I try to write what I like, uh, what I think a couple of my friends uh, would like that I have in mind, um, what I think my father would like. Uh, and then I keep my fingers crossed that enough other people will like it that, you know, it stays afloat. Um, and uh, that would be the advice that I'd give. Let's give it up. Thank you all very, very much. Thank you, guys. Thanks a lot.
Thanks for listening. 92i Talks is supported by a generous endowment established by Daphne Reconati Kaplan and Thomas S. Kaplan. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and find more great conversations at 92iondemand.org.